Welcome to the Race to the Bottom podcast. I am your host, Ed Cohen. I am joined by my co-host, Mike Friedberg, and today's guest is Ryan Pasiga, attorney for Reggie Lynch. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And welcome to the show a second time because... We had a lively off-air discussion. Well, I wish it was that simple. I forgot to push the go button on the recording, so we're taking a second stab at this. It's going to be really good this time. Yeah. Anyway, Ryan uh, is here today to talk about Reggie Lynch and talk a little bit about the investigation and sort of the processes and procedures involved in um, EEOA investigations at universities. And so, Ryan, let me just uh, let me just ask you this: uh, there is a difference between criminal law and EEOA investigations, correct? Right. Yeah, you want to explain the difference between those a little bit? Sure. So in the criminal situations, we have those bedrock constitutional and Bill of Rights principles that apply the presumption of innocence, the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, your right to select a jury that is free from bias or at least examine them for that, the rules of evidence, a judge presiding over those proceedings to make sure that things are fair under the rules of evidence and those sorts of things. In a Title IX investigation, those things don't apply. One of the big differences is that the burden of proof is what's called a preponderance of the evidence, which means just slightly more likely than not, or 50.01%, not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't have the right, if you go to the university and have a hearing before a panel, uh, those panels panelists are randomly assigned from a group of volunteers. You don't have a right to inquire, have you heard about this case before? Do you, you know? Do you think something might have happened? Are you able to presume him innocent? Do you have any biases? None of that applies, and the rules of evidence don't apply either. So it's a much different arena. Okay, and so in in Reggie's case right now, um, there have been allegations made, correct? Right. And those have been investigated by this EEOA commission, correct? Right. And then what happens? They investigate and. What happens from that point forward? So they make written findings and either find that something happened by that preponderance of the evidence standard, uh, and if so, then they'll recommend a penalty, or they make findings that say there's, there's not enough to substantiate that, and then it's done. So in, this, in these cases, they've made two findings. There are two allegations that are alive, one that they recommend suspension for and another that they recommend expulsion for. Okay. So let's, to be clear again, um, there's two separate matters that would or could take place. One of them is criminal. The other one is this civil investigation procedure through the university. In your professional opinion, because I know the statute of limitations hasn't run, in your professional opinion, is there any chance whatsoever that any of these could arise to a prosecution at this point? I don't think so, having having taken a look at what the findings are. You know, what's really troubling in, in these cases is that these reports came approximately 18 months after the alleged incidents. In at least one of those cases, and perhaps both, evidence could have been collected and tested, like DNA, semen, blood, all those sorts of things. Uh, which could have either then helped the investigation to find that something happened, where your defense is that nothing happened, not that it was consent, the evidence would be black and white. Is there DNA? Is there semen? And those sorts of things. And that could have cleared his name, but uh, that 
wasn't collected because a report didn't come for approximately 18 months after. Okay. Now, there's also a third claim, correct? Right. And there was another investigation uh, executed by the EEOA commission before, right? Correct. And when was that? Um, that was from the spring of 2016 in, in that particular case, and I did not represent him in that, but there was a report both to law enforcement and to the EOAA. Okay. Law enforcement uh, did not charge him with any crime whatsoever, and then the EOAA uh, investigated it and also uh, did not find that any violation occurred of the student conduct code. So he's cleared in those investigations. And in that investigation, what what does the EEOA investigator have? I mean, are, do they have the police reports? Do they have their own investigation? What what do they use to make their determination? And when you say in that investigation, do you mean the current ones or the one that was cleared? I mean the first one, the one that was yeah. cleared. So sometimes they will have access to the law enforcement reports, and sometimes they don't. They'll, I've seen it happen both ways there. I don't know in that case if they had access to the police reports or not. I will tell you that if they don't get the reports, they'll still go forward with their investigation. Sure. And in actually in another one that you worked on, uh, Antoine Winfield Jr., they had those police reports, didn't they? In yes, that they case? did. Okay. And so part of their investigation was based on the previous work that the police did, correct? Right. Okay. Um, on the other two investigations, the the ones that are currently have resulted in his suspension or expulsion or whatever limbo you're in right now, um, was there a police investigation? There was in one of them. There was a report to University of Minnesota Police, again, long after the, uh, the alleged conduct took place. The... Uh, the report from the police officer that the University of Minnesota uh, took uh, differed substantially from the report that was made or laid made by that accusing person to the EOAA. Okay. Yet the EOAA, despite that substantial difference in the allegations and the, the theme of the story, if you will, still found uh, the report to be credible from the complaining person despite those major differences. I guess that is what happens when you have amateurs doing an investigation. Um, <clears throat> I forgot where I was going. Um, the, there's a police report, which obviously I guess isn't public at this point. There are written reports of the allegations against him in the, in the, the university action. Yes. Those are still private, but... Uh, Will they ever be released? Will the public ever see, be able to see the differences between the police report and the, the investigative report from the whatever the initials are? It could happen. I've been told that there are several media outlets that already have the reports. Okay. They haven't released them for whatever reason. We haven't provided any to anybody. So I know that these reports were leaked either by somebody within the University of Minnesota, which has happened before, or one of the accusing parties or their you know their lawyers or something we just don't know i'm not saying one party did it more likely than the other but certainly it wasn't our side can you tell us anything to look for in them by way of discrepancies before uh, before we see them well like i said one of the discrepancies is what was told to the university of minnesota police versus what was told to the eoaa and then um, there are other 
discrepancies in differences in accounts that the EOAA kind of attributes to trauma or being minor discrepancies or whatever their reasons are. I'm not going to let them all out at this point because if we go forward for the hearings, I'm, I'm certainly not going to show all my cards and, and allow witnesses to be coached if uh, that occurs. Understood. So what's the process um, that these investigators... Now, I don't think I've asked you this a second time, but who are the investigators? What, Where do they come from? What's their background and... and you know, is this, are they, is it really something that these people should be doing, these types of investigations? They're lawyers, usually, okay. uh, that, you know, had different legal jobs in other arenas before. Um, they're sort of like you would consider to be an HR department, okay. if you will. So they're not as well trained as law enforcement that has a lot of experience, these detectives investigating sex crimes or the like. Okay. So as they're investigating these these allegations do you think they have training to notice these discrepancies and to really rationalize them the way that police officers do i mean to to analyze them to look at them and figure out whether or not somebody is uh being truthful being manipulative stretching the facts understating the facts or don't they care because nobody's going to be able to ask the difficult questions later I like to hope that they go into these investigations neutrally and they do their best job to try to figure out what happened, okay? My own take on it, having gone through a number of these cases that have both been public and some private, is that if there is a difference in, a lot of times they'll point out discrepancies in an interview, right? Um, Whether it's the accused person saying this happened and other people are saying, no, it went this way, or the accused person the second time they interview them, there are some differences in the interview. Or if it's the accusing party, same sort of scenario. And what I've typically seen is that if the accused person has any discrepancy between interview one and interview two or what they said and another witness says, they attribute that to dishonesty. And if it's the accusing party having those same sorts of classes of differences, they attribute it to the trauma or to being uh, minor differences or some other explanation for why that happened. I'm not saying they do that across the board, but I've seen it multiple times, and that's very troubling to me because it's like these excuses are built in. If you're the accuser, they're going to build in excuses for you and dismiss it as that. If you're the accused, you're automatically lying. So are these biases really just sort of baked into this system here? They could be. Okay. And that's alarming. If that can happen, I would, again, I'm not saying everybody across the board would be that way, but I, I have certainly had that view in my own experiences as advocating for the accused in these situations. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about where we go and what happens next in this case. Uh, we'll be right back. Thanks. I'm Joe Friedberg. I'm a lawyer. I've handled a lot of DUI cases. I know a lot of people that have lost their license and can't drive because of it. There's a way around it. Go to SmartStartMN.com and get a device for your car that allows you to drive. The state has to let you drive. Do not go with imitators. Learn more at SmartStartMN.com. That's SmartStartMN.com.
I hear the train a-comin', it's rollin' around the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps... We are back with Mike Friedberg and Ryan Pasiga. Uh, Ryan, we're talking about uh, Reggie Lynch, the EEOA investigations. Um, so where do things go from here? The let's. Why don't you explain what the findings were and, and what the, the university has done and then what the next steps are, where things go. So in the two cases that are currently alive, the EOAA has found that there have been violations of the student conduct code of the sexual nature. And in one of those cases, they recommended expulsion. The other, they recommended suspension. Reggie has appealed. Uh, both of those are actually what you do it is you say you request a hearing. Okay. okay. The hearing would go through this student sexual misconduct committee, subcommittee, where you're assigned this panel of three volunteers. And uh, that case is presented sort of like a mini trial. And who are these volunteers? There are students and faculty who have, you know, volunteered to be part of this process. Do these people have any kind of specific training to handle these types of cases? They do get some training. What was alarming in the football case, for example, was the very person that made that, like, 80-page EOAA investigation finding in the football case. The person who was the head of that investigation and made those findings was also one of the people that trained these panelists and we were calling her credibility into question in these panel hearings for the university of football players and can you imagine that saying to a panel you know that woman that trained you here well our our client says he didn't say it that way to her and she's saying he did and so that's an alarming situation and i hope that uh, that's no longer part of that process that there's a I mean, in my mind, there's a there's a real question of fairness, which, you know, all of these proceedings should be fair to all of the parties involved, and and it seems as if you have people trained by the person who wrote the report that that just doesn't seem fair. Is it not fair at all? Uh, it's a big blunder, and, and I, again, they may have corrected it by now. So, who wrote these reports re- regarding Reggie? I don't know if that person trained. Uh, any of these volunteer panelists or not, I would hope not. Let me let me ask you this, um, and you probably paid a lot more attention to this than I did, being that you practice law in this field. <clears throat> Our Secretary of Education, some time ago, I remember, had made had had proposed some changes to the way these EEOC investi- uh, EOAA investigations work, and a lot of the country was up in arms about what she was doing, and. I honestly cannot tell you what proposed changes there were, but I'm counting on you to know and, and, and let us know what, how you feel about them and how they might make things more fair. Yes, um, I think they've been good. So there was basically a rollback of a letter that was called a Dear Colleague letter that beefed up more of these investigations and cases, and, and universities were feeling pressure to make findings, I think, because a lot of this is tied to their Title IX funding. Okay, and there were many examples of total miscarriages of justice, even when, for example, an accuser said, this isn't really went went down, and I don't want this person even investigated for this. It's not like that. And uh, there was a famous player about a a story about a soccer player out at a California university, for example. Um, So 
the education secretary has rolled back some of those dear colleague guidelines and said, let's make this more fair for everybody involved because there have been miscarriages of justice on both sides of it, in her opinion. So one thing she did, for example, is she took away the very quick deadlines that were imposed upon universities to conduct and make findings in these allegations. Because if you rush through an investigation, it speaks for itself, right? That could lead to devastating things. Another thing uh, that she did is she gave universities the option to change their burden of proof requirement from a preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher standard of proof, not as, as high as proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but certainly uh, something different than a slight tip of the scales. To my knowledge, there's not a single school in Minnesota that has made that change despite the ability to do so if they want to do it. I'd like to see it, of course, because these are very severe situations when you're accused of this and the consequences are very severe. You're talking about suspension or expulsion. You're talking about a permanent mark on your transcript and the ability to go get jobs after that or seek higher education in the, in the form of if you want to get your master's or your doctorate or whatever. Um, and then obviously the branding that happens in social media nowadays. So uh, I think it's a good thing to, to change that burden of proof, but obviously that's an unpopular position to take. And it, it's not mandated at this point. It's not. Is there any possibility that it, it will be in the future, or is it just too unpopular? I think it's just too unpopular, to be honest. Okay, and so the investigation has been complete. There have been recommendations, uh, and then the athletic department took action, correct? Yeah, so what happens in these situations is an athletic department has options about what they want to do with a player or not. They could certainly allow him to continue to practice and play in games, and that would be, I think, consistent with a presumption of innocence. Uh, or they could have suspended him right out of the gate. I've had situations in the past where uh, athletic departments at schools have just flat out stopped the player from participating in all practices games, taken away a scholarship, you name it, even before a panel hearing occurred at different schools. Um, Here there was sort of a hybrid, right, where uh, he was allowed to continue to practice and play until these EOAA findings came out. Once the findings came out, uh, then the university athletic department prohibited him for, from participating in any more games, but has still allowed him to practice. That kind of begs my question for, for Mark Coyle, which is 18 months down the road after this has happened, you suspend him from playing. What have you accomplished? Have you accomplished anything because he's still on campus if you thought he was a danger to other students you throw him off the team and hopefully he leaves but to allow him to stay on campus practice with the team what what what's accomplished anything practically speaking i don't think so because of the timing of it as well you know by the time this process plays out the season will be nearly over it, right now, it doesn't look like this is a team that's going to be heading for the 60-14 tournament. So I don't know that it does a lot, and I think it kind of confuses. Do you think, are you supporting this EOAA finding uh, or not? And it's sort of in between. These are these are tough things to do for an athletic director as well. I mean, again, I'd, I'd 
would like to see him presumed innocent unless and until there's a panel finding here. But Well, let me ask you, though, is, is there any presumption that you're given? I mean, look, we, we all know about the criminal presumption. Now, that said, if he were arrested for, the, for a criminal charge related to this, it's likely that the school would suspend him not only from games, but probably practice and maybe even school as well. So if, if that's what it is in a criminal case, this is a, obviously a lower burden, a, a completely different process. How, how do you handle the balance between an investigation that hasn't been finalized yet and the appeal? I mean, how do you, how do you balance those two things and suspend him from games? I mean, it, it, does, it, does that make any sense? Or what should, what should the school have done here? You're, you don't have that presumption of innocence in Title IX proceedings. I think because you're talking about irreparable harm, if you get it wrong, right? We've seen in, in the NFL sometimes there's an injunction where a player is allowed to play because they can't get back those games. We look back to the football case where they weren't allowed to play in the bowl game. And, you know, half of those players were later cleared. Did they ever get anything back? No. Did they get an apology? No. Did anything happen to the accuser in that situation where there were clearly situations that were rejected by the panel? No. Do, should he be able to play while this is going on because he can't get back his senior season and those things? That's a question that the U has to answer, but they've made their determination. You're writing these questions for me. So when all of this came out, Ed and I were you know, saying, Jesus, is he represented by somebody? We hope he gets a decent lawyer. We find out he's represented by you, Ryan Pasiga, and we know he's in good hands. And our question for each other was, is Ryan going to run to a federal judge and get an injunction? And did that cross your mind? Is it being processed at your office right now? Um, you know, honestly, it becomes a matter of finances. Okay. Okay, so he's a college kid. He doesn't have money like that, and you have to decide where you're going to put your efforts during this time. I also honestly don't know what our likelihood of being able to get an injunction would be at that stage of the proceedings, again, because we're dealing with Title IX as opposed to a criminal thing, and you don't have the same rights in Title IX as the NFL would have in their collective bargaining agreement, for example, so the, the analysis under the law is different. You are looking at some significant irreparable harm, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is his senior season, and you know the NFL, NFL, the NBA, and your draft stock. Yep, right. All of those sorts of things. It's it's a big thing, and part of it is look. There are absolutely victims of sexual assault. There are times when women are assaulted and they don't make a report right away, but a assault certainly has happened. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But one of the problems we have right now is there's an immediate rush to call an accuser is automatically called a victim right out of the gate. And I'm not taking away anything from real victims of sexual assault. But what I'm saying is everyone right now that says it happened is called a victim. They're, they're, everybody's siding with them and saying, I empathize with you, I believe you, I stand for you. And then what that does right now is it takes the accused, and if they say something like, this didn't happen, or look at these facts, doesn't this help show that I didn't do this because of this, then you're blaming the victim. And wait a minute, who says they're a victim? Because courts don't allow an accuser to be called a victim until a jury says 
This happened. They are a victim. They're called the accuser for a reason. But in these situations, the minute someone says it happened in Title IX cases or in social media or whatever, they're a victim and they, they have all of these protections. And I'm saying, look, true victims are entitled to these protections. They need them. We need to give them the resources and help them heal and give them justice. But if there's an allegation that's embellished or false, you hold off and you say, we're going to let these facts play off before we tell you who the victim is. Because I'll tell you, when there's an investigation and, and it shows that someone didn't do something or we find out that there was a false allegation, the victim in that situation is not the accuser but the accused. So we need to stop calling someone a victim right away and take our breath, take a little bit of time, and let the facts play out before we rush to judgment because we're hurting a lot of people's lives by rushing to judgment right now. So on this idea of rush to judgment, uh, do you know whether or not either of the, the, the current panels, were they aware of the original allegation against him? No, because we have the panels haven't even been assigned yet. Oh, I, so. I, I'm sorry. I meant the investigations, the yeah. investigators. Yes, yes. It's the same department. So they, you know, they're certainly well aware of it. Yes. I, and I presume that that's a bias that you're going to explore in this panel hearing? Yeah, I mean, uh, right, all of the comments that have been out there since have kind of said where there's smoke, there's fire, and if there's multiple accusers, then something must have happened, right? And I think that'll be a challenge for a panel. That would be a challenge for a jury if they were informed of these things. And and how can that not affect your average person's take on whether something happened or not? So that is a, a mountain that we'll have to climb. And are you going to have both of these allegations heard together or are you going to have them heard separately by different panels they need to be separate right because otherwise all of the dangers of that are inherent in grouping multiple allegations together would would couple and, and just be impossible to get a fair hearing how do you address you know these these real due process concerns with the university I mean, the university controls this procedure, I presume, and they're given wide-ranging sort of discretion to hold these hearings any way that fits within, I, I assume, is a fairly broad definition of what the hearings are. H how do you make sure that uh, due process considerations are taken, you know, addressed? You want to document everything and, and voice your concerns in writing to the university so you preserve a record. You, you Technically, you'd, you'd be able to go to federal court after if there were miscarriages of the Title IX process and procedures that could give you remedies in federal court. Um, I'll tell you, though, it's hard, and it's also very expensive. Um, I saw personally in the football case, even when there was black-letter policy at the University of Minnesota about how these things go, there were rules that were bent uh, and things that that I think weren't fair and that probably amounted to violations, in my opinion. But again, taking a case to federal court is expensive, uh, and at some point, sometimes kids just decide to, to walk away. It just depends. But I'd like to see some accountability there. All right. Oh, I was going to ask you just not entirely off topic, but uh, did you get a chance to hear the speaker at the uh, Innocence Project Minnesota? Um, what is it? The Innocence Ball or whatever they call it? 
Yeah, the annual dinner. Yeah, did you get a chance to attend that? I didn't get to to this year. I did get to read about it. Okay, yeah. The, we had one of the uh, accused from the Duke lacrosse team whose life could have been absolutely destroyed by that. He managed to pull himself up by the bootstraps and have a very successful career. But uh, that's an example of the horrible things that can happen when these are handled so poorly. That can happen, and, and, you know, we have the Innocence Project where there are murderers or rapists that are locked in prison for 10, 15, 20 years, and DNA that was collected at the time but the technology didn't exist is later tested, and we find out that even a jury of 12 that might have been doing their best to get it right got it all wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a perfect process, uh, but we're in this time right now where these allegations are so serious, and I think we're in the middle of of a situation where we've wanted to correct wrongs that have happened for so long, right? The Me Too movement is a good thing. We need that awareness. We need that correction in our society. Uh, what I don't want to happen is that when there's an allegation, the people who are falsely or wrongfully accused slip through the cracks in our efforts to correct these wrongs, and that's what I'm afraid of right now. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, when and if something has happened like this, we can't make it unhappen. We can't go back in time and make the event not happen, but we can get things right going forward, and we appreciate your efforts in doing so. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming in, Ryan. Thank you for having me, guys.